everyone. Welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. I am Justin, a.k.a. Soft Pillows, and this is... This is Derek, back to Bird That Steals from our uh, little hiatus here for our side quest last week. Yeah, I still got to get it posted, but I, um, I'm running out of storage on my computer, so I need to pick up like an external hard drive and move stuff over, so... Things might be a little slower as far as editing goes. Oh, I suppose this might take up a little bit of space, huh? Just a wee bit. Um, and the YouTube videos don't help because they're like almost two or three gigs each. So, um, but yeah, no worries. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed already, Mr. Garney, that uh, kind of in a silly mood today. Okay. I did notice um, a little bit. So for some really fucked up reason i went to take a nap at five o'clock last night didn't wake up till eight this morning yeah i don't know where the fuck that came from why i was so tired i just fucking slept so feel pretty energized uh well yeah that's that's good some people might call that a small (laughs) coma just a little comatose right but hey, I mean, if, if that's how long you slept, your your body obviously needed that. Yeah, I mean, I remember waking up, you know, three or four times throughout that period of sleep. But each time I'm like, yeah, I'm so tired. I'm going back to bed. So probably. <laughs> it's getting closer. To... Right. Sometimes you got to rest. It's getting closer to, you know, moving. We got like a couple weeks left before we move. And, you know, we're still not packed. Which is fine. It doesn't take that long to pack, really. But it's just a lot of a lot of mental juggling on on things. So I've been sleeping. Yeah, packing is. Uh, I mean, I guess it kind of depends on how much stuff you have. But it. Uh, I don't know. I, I, it seems like you always find you have more stuff than you thought you did when it yeah, comes time to. Yeah, I think it's a combination of. What stuff are we going to keep? What stuff are we donating? What stuff is trash? You know? Um, so it's on, it's all of that on top of packing. And yeah, it's just, it's a little overwhelming, which is fine. I'm sure it'll be easier once we're actually moved out, you know, because then there's the whole cleaning of the place. This thing hasn't, this house hasn't been deep cleaned in years, you know? Well, it'll still be exciting to move into a new place, and it's one of those, you know, it's kind of like a fresh start, I guess. You know, it's always a, and it'll be yours, you know. That's a good feeling versus, you know, renting. Right, yeah. It's something, it's an asset that belongs to me. So, yeah. And once it's paid off, if the kids need a place to stay and we've moved on, then they can stay there. That's true. But yeah, uh, I guess. What about you? What's uh, what's been new? What's been up? Not. Uh, it's been a pretty busy weekend. I worked both jobs Friday night, so got home about ten o'clock. Went to bed uh, yesterday. Took the family to Valley Fair. Um, I guess for those outside of the area, it'd be kind of like a Six Flags type deal, an amusement park. Uh, we're there basically all day. Got home last night, uh, went to bed, woke up this morning, and my wife and I went for a four-mile four run. 
So and then I mowed the lawn and now we're tired. Well then there you go. Uh the weather was decent yesterday too, so been nice for riding. Yeah, it was temperature was really good. It was just kind of overcast all day, so we weren't getting beat up by the sun. But uh yeah, it was a pretty good day. That's good. I haven't been to Valley Fair in years. Yeah, it'd been a couple of years since I had gone to. So it was fun to go back and um it was pretty busy, so I think you know, if we try to go next year, we might just go take a day off during the week and go when lines aren't that bad because most of the stuff was probably 45 minutes away. Which, you know, I guess, you know, you compare to like, you know, if you went to like Universal or something like that, you know, that's probably kind of standard about any time I would guess. But um, yeah, it was still fun. Good. Are there pops still like $7 a pop? We packed a cooler and had um, like sandwiches and bottles of water and stuff. We did get some, we got some Dippin' Dots ice cream and um, for the kids each got their own and then Kelly and I split a large one and it was like 25 bucks for all three. I guess it could be worse. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you know things are going to be more expensive. Yeah, now. that's true. Cool. Well, I mean, what do you say we should get this show on the road? Let's do it. You want me to take the epigraph or you want her? Um, why don't you go ahead? You can take All it. All right. I just got to get to that page. Fuck pages to start off. Well, I guess we kind of have two of them, we don't do, we? We do, yeah, because we're starting the uh, the sub book, the fete. So you, you want to take the uh, one for the book and I'll take the one for the chapter? Sounds And then uh, just continue into my summarization? Sounds good. The flaying of Fander, she-wolf of winter, marks the dawn of Gedaron. The priestesses race down the streets, strips off wolf furs streaming from their hands, banners are unfurled, the noises and smells of the market rise into the morning air, masks are donned, the citizens discard the year's worries and dance across the day into night. The Lady of Spring is born anew. It is as if the gods themselves pause their breath. It is said that the matrons, blood like ice, brought forth into this world a birthing of dragons. And this flowing river of fate brought light into dark and dark into light, unveiling at last in cold, cold eyes, the children of chaos. So starting off, uh, well, this is uh, episode 21 of the, uh, I guess, the main quest here, the main objective um, I guess episode 22, if you count the side quest, but this will be chapter 20. Marilio marveled at Ralic's healed wound. He figured whatever powder he used on himself must have been the reason for the healing. Still, he lost a lot of blood, and it would take time to recover. Precious time they didn't really have. He wondered if Ralic would still be able to kill Or. He made his way down the street, Dawn still a couple hours away. The celebration would begin at sunrise and go well into night, as was Daru custom. It was the end of the year of five tusks, and the year of the moon's tears would replace it. A massive machine marked the cycle of an age and named the years. A gift from Icarium over a thousand years ago. Mammoth thought Icarium was in part Jaghut. He rode a Jaghut horse and had a trowel at his side, and that seemed to be evidence enough for him. Marilio wondered 
at the significance of the names for the years, the incoming and outgoing names held some prophecy to the seers. The boar, Tenorak, his tusks were named hate, love, laughter, war, and tears, and he wondered which tusk was prominent, though he thought the New Year's name seemed to answer the question. He was, after all, a skeptic on astrology. With Moonspawn showing up, it did put some name, excuse me, with Moonspawn showing up, it did put the name into some new light, and the local scholars were irritated by it. As he rounded the corner to the Phoenix Inn, he ran into Krupp. Krupp says, what luck to run into each other here. Now there is no need to search for each other. Marilio noticed something at Krupp's feet and asked him what they were. He replies, gifts for him and Ralic for the fete and asks him if they look expensive enough or if he's embarrassed by them. Marilio says he won't distract him. Why are there three masks? Well, one is for Krupp. Marilio tells Krupp that he isn't coming. Krupp says like hell he isn't going. If he doesn't go to Lady Simtal's event, she won't show up because she'd be so ashamed. Marilio says that Ralic will kill him. Krupp says, how will he manage to do that when he won't be able to recognize him with the mask on? Marilio gives up, and Krupp gives him the masks and says that Baruch doesn't need to wait on a message that he can't mention. As Krupp is about to leave, Marilio asks Krupp if he's seen Call. Krupp says yes, he's resting from his ordeal, and that he was healed magically by a stranger, brought in by another stranger, who got another stranger, so there were five strangers in total. Krupp tries to leave again, and Marilio stops him again and says he knows who he is. He knows he's the eel. Krupp is sweating and wipes it from his forehead. He says he has everyone fooled, but not him. Krupp waves his fingers around and casts a spell. Marilio blinks and is dizzy and doesn't remember what they had been talking about and thanks Krupp for the masks. Comments that he's glad Call is doing okay and he better get going to check on Ralic. Krupp smiles and says to have a good night and he'll see him at the fete. So there it is. There's uh, the, the payoff we've been we've been waiting for. You think so? What makes you think so? I mean, I think that Krupp wiping his memory of their conversation about him being the eel is, is confirmation in my eyes. I didn't even look at it that way. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're 100% right. I mean, not that I didn't agree with you. Totally thought that Krupp is, is the eel the whole time. But I just thought it was very slippery of Krupp to just kind of, oh, well, I don't want to have this conversation. So I'm going to, you know, wave my little short sausage-like fingers here maybe slippery like an eel right right slippery like a little eel yeah no that that's good but for some reason that that type of confirmation never occurred to me which i don't know why that was a good catch good yeah it was just like as soon as i read that i was like there it is and uh i feel you know if if somehow there was a twist and it wasn't him it would just be kind of a lot to a lot of work for I don't know that the payoff would be worth it, I guess, you know, if it wasn't Krupp. Oh, right. To, to me, it wouldn't make sense at that point. Right. To go back and like explain all the things that would have made the reader think it was Krupp. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that, I think that you're right. Um, but I mean, there's still a lot of mystery around the eel slash Krupp, right? I mean, like what all has he been involved in this whole time that 
you know, have have hasn't even been revealed really. Right. But um a couple Go ahead. No, I was just right. I had a butt there, but I didn't have anything for that butt. No handful to grab? Nope. <laughs> I was just to say a couple other things that kind of I, I picked up. Um, you know, the New Year's name, the year of the moon's tears. So it seems kind of ominous, you know, is is Moonspawn going to take a beating here? Um, I, I guess, I mean, we don't have a whole lot of this book, so it would seem... No, but I guess like that, you know, for their, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say for, you know, for some sort of like major, I, I guess I don't, I'm not really expecting a major battle here to close out this book or anything. There's got to be some sort of action, but I don't think it's going to be, you know, like the, the, the battle we saw towards the beginning, you know, at pale. Right. Um, but is, is something going to happen with moon spawn here where, uh, you know, it's, weeping or something like that i mean i think i think on a more like layered type of thought what i got from that is you remember how rake was explaining to baruch how like the tistiande just don't more or less have like a reason to live kind of a thing like they're just existing i feel like this is kind of like in comparison to that like moon's tears you know, you shed a tear for, you know, being able to empathize with maybe what the Tistiande are going through, you know, is kind of more or less what I got from that, even though that's probably not right. But I mean, it's it's kind of hard as a reader to to not empathize with that type of mentality, you know. Um, I guess that's just kind of where I go. Or it could very well be that like, you know, Rake and and this supposed Jay Hut tyrant do do battle and whatever is kind you know Rake is I from what I understand and what I remember is is anticipating to not be able to defeat him but to weaken him, which can only mean one thing, right? So, does that have something to do with the year of the moon's tears? Like, Moon Spawn loses their their beloved lord and leader. Yeah, that could be. I mean, it's definitely foreshadowing. I, I don't know what else it would be, but what specifically? I guess, you know, we just kind of have to read and find out, right? Yeah, or I guess maybe we're just grasping at straws that aren't really there is the other possibility, but I think it's got to mean something. Right. So maybe maybe you and I are aligned with kind of how Marilio feels in this chapter because he seems to feel like there is some significance you know of the names for the years but kind of like caps it off with a well you know overall i'm kind of a skeptic about astrology which i am as well so i kind of understand where he's coming from right yeah i'm not reading my horoscope every day or anything actually i hardly ever do such a thing but yeah once in a while i don't know it's kind of like a fortune cookie they're fun to do once in a while yeah yeah absolutely like don't get me wrong it's it's entertaining but to call it some type of religion or a way to live life or to judge other people. Uh, that part drives me crazy. Um, and it's only because I have some, some personal experiences with being judged based on the month I was born in. Oh yeah. It seems like a little crap, doesn't it? Like, yeah. Um, the other thing, uh, what do you suppose a trell is? 
I don't remember that being talked about before. You know, it must be some sort of people, species, tribe, you know, something along those lines. But I don't remember them coming up, them being mentioned. No, you're... Or maybe I'm just not remembering and they did. No, you're right. The trail has not been... I mean, if it's been mentioned, it wasn't anything significant enough for us to touch base on, but... Um, I don't think that it has been brought up before. Um, it's either it's either like, you know, a group of people or it's some type of object, kind of like the bone phone, you know, some type bone of phone. bone phone. Yeah. Some type of something, you know, that accompanies him. But, you know, what it could be or kind of like, you know, you know, the Jag Hut's finished, like something like that, some type of. Like companion item. Sure. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm sure it's something we'll find out a little something about, anyways. Yeah, I would at imagine. some point. Um, but according to Mammoth, didn't he say he was like part Jag Hut or something like that? Um, Icarium. Yeah, yeah, Icarim was part Jag Hut, so maybe it's. Not necessarily the trowel is any type of jag hut means, but you know, from whatever type of what he's mixed with, so to speak. Yeah, it sounds. I mean, it sounds like he must have some jag hut blood. I mean, if you're riding a jag hut horse, it sounds like you must must be uh, a descendant to some extent. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I guess this whole the, the the beginning of this chapter just made me think of like like a masquerade party you know how like sometimes you see that in like tv shows or movies or something like that and i just yeah, i think that's definitely what this is going for yeah i feel i feel very intrigued and i hope that steven erickson describes what type of masks these guys uh or what krupp has given marillion and Ralic, because i almost feel like it's going to have something to do with their character you know, kind of like a extension of who they are. I, th- I think you're going to be right on that. And later on in this chapter, we do kind of get, now that you mentioned that, I guess something that I would take as maybe a kind of a hint towards that. But we'll save that for later when we get there. Hmm. I'm searching for answers, so I look forward to that. I uh, I guess I don't recall that. Do you think they will have karaoke at this party? They could sing You Used to Call Me on the Bone Phone. <laughs> uh, I'm at a bone phone trying to call home. Yeah. <laughs> that was the only song I could think of that had phone in it. But um, Oh, I was thinking, I can't. I don't even know the name of the song, but it's He Used to Call Me on the Cell Phone. Uh, like a hip-hop song or whatever. Uh, he used to call me on the bone phone. Gotcha. No, both of those work really well. I like that. We should come up with like a, a Now Hits featuring <laughs> wherever we can put bone phone in there. <laughs> we could work that in some different ways, I suppose. But yeah, I yeah, I don't know. I just I like the whole idea of that, you know, there's a festival happening and everyone's wearing masks and I don't know. I've always just I've always enjoyed like that premise of that type of party. So 
I can envision it pretty Didn't well. Did you actually go to like a masquerade party not terribly long ago? Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I guess a little bit more grander, grandier type of stuff with like music. Oh, so like uh, you want to wear like a suit like you were sinking on the Titanic, but wear a mask. That's right. <laughs> a big grand staircase. Yep, that's right. Did you just say a big paran staircase? No. Oh. I was okay. But you did. <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, the biggest thing on this section, just you know, kind of the the reveal of corrupt. Like I was like fist pumping as I read that because I was like, yes, I called it and I knew it. Yeah, and from a long ass fucking time ago, like that's been yeah. that's been a hunch that you've been you've been chasing for many chapters now, probably since we were like one third through the book, and. Yeah, probably somewhere around there. Probably got to feel pretty good that uh, your theory was right. Or at least, for the most part, pointing that direction. Yeah. Not conclusive to the reader, but uh, if if one has been paying attention as, as close as we have, um, pretty big payoff. Yeah, it just it felt like it was just like a, I guess, like a, a personal victory, I guess. Personal victory. Okay. Yeah, cool. I mean, I liked I liked the introduction to this chapter. I felt like it it set things up nicely. Yeah. But I guess if you're ready, oh. I'm ready to move on. Yeah. Take her away. Baruch's features were darkening as he studied the Tistiandi lounging in the chair across from him. Baruch says that he doesn't think think it's a good idea. Rake raises an eyebrow at this question and responds that he understands that this festival includes wearing disguise and questions Baruch if he questions his taste. Baruch snaps at Rake and tells him that he doesn't doubt that his costume will be suitable, especially if he dresses as a Tistiande warlord. Baruch admits that it's the council members he's worried about because they are not fools. Rake asks Baruch if he would point out the council members who are working to pave the way for the Empress, asking Baruch if he's far off the mark. Sourly, Baruch tells him that he is not far off the mark, but Baruch has had or has that issue handled. Rake is like, yeah, motherfucker, this brings me to the next reason for wanting to attend the Lady Simitil's Fete. Rake points out that Baruch had said that all of the city's power will be there. Rake assumes this also means Baruch's Torud Cabal. Baruch tells Rake that some will attend. However, due to Rake's debacle with the Assassin's Guild, has made them question their alliance with Moonspawn, and that they'll not appreciate Rake's attendance. Rising, and with his smile returning, Rake tells Baruch that he would like to attend. Baruch's gaze focused on Rake and asks if he expects a convergence of power at this fete. Rake admits this is true, and he'd like to be there in the event something does happen. And if this fete is publicly known, then it is likely that the Empire's agents will be there as well. And if they wanted to take out the heart of Jerugistan, then, then they have a good opportunity to do so. Baruch's only reply to this was to tell Rake that he had hired extra guards. After a pause of thinking, Baruch also accepts Rake's request and tells Rake that he'll have him as his guest at Lady Simitil's fete. Baruch sits up and walks towards the window. Rake follows. Baruch begins to tell the story about the history around the turning of a new year. 
Rake interjects and tells the story, to which Baruch was surprised at Rake's knowledge, which gave Baruch a dozen questions. Rake continued on. Rake warns Baruch to heed Ikarim's gifts, because a thousand years isn't as long as one would think. Rake tells Baruch that Ikarim had visited him, visited him 800 years ago in the company of the Trell Mapo and Osric, or Osiric. Rake recalls that Osric and him had an argument, an old argument. At this point, Rake is kind of spacing out, lost in memories. Suddenly, there's a knock at the door, and both turn to see Roald enter the room. Roald tells Baruch that Mammoth has awakened and appears refreshed, and that Krupp has delivered a message from the eel, and would Baruch like to hear it? The message from the eel is conveyed. Roald asks Baruch if he should send in Mammoth. Baruch simply tells Roald that if he's able to. Rake and Baruch banter about the eel in Jerujistan when Mammoth enters. Mamet greets Rake and explains to Rake his excitement to finally meet him. Baruch tells Mamet that they were worried about him with all the elder magic surrounding him. Mamet admits that he was like snared for a bit and that by remaining dormant, the Jaghut stirring could not detect him. Baruch asks, how many days do they have left? Mamet explains that they have two, maybe three days before the tyrant uh, fully returns to life. Mammoth sees some wine on the fire man the fireplace mantle and walks over to grab it. Drinking deeply, he asks Baruch if he has a word about his nephew Crocus. Baruch, in fear, asks him to say his name again. Mammoth says that his nephew's name was Crocus. Baruch's face Baruch face palms and calls himself a fool. Mammoth all casually says, Oh, you mean the matter of the coin bearer? Baruch was shocked. Rake interrupts and asks Mamet if he'll be at the fete. Mamet tells him that he will. Rake tells him that they'll talk later that night. He puts on his gloves and then departs. Baruch had no time to think of Rake's sudden departure, which was his first mistake. Uh, I my, I guess my statement, you know, if Rake's like seven or eight feet tall, right? Like, I don't. I don't care what costume you put on somebody like that. Like, <laughs> they're going to stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> right. Right. And especially if he's got, you know, Dragnapur on his back. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I didn't even think of that. That that yeah, that was a good giggle. That was a good laugh. Um, yeah, what, what else did you think? I think that Baruch and Rake are assuming that something is going to happen at this fete. So I think that this is definitely some foreshadowing and I feel like it probably has a lot to do with the mines that have been planted around Darujistan by Whiskey Jack. I think that's maybe what it's alluding to, but I think more so Rake than Baruch though. Um, but Baruch, you know, in his in wisdom and, you know, how intelligent he is, is kind of catches on to that pretty quick. I don't know if you caught that during that section. Like, Rake is almost expecting something to happen, but Baruch, for whatever reason, feels like he's already handled it, but is catching on to the fact that Rake is anticipating something. Yeah, I think something for sure is going to happen. Yeah, is it, I guess I didn't even think of the mines, but that's a good point. You know, are they finally going to go off? 
or is it going to be something else? Right. Yeah. Um, it's just, uh, it's just these last two chapters, maybe two or three chapters have just been like so anticipatory. Like I just come on already, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but like, goddamn, uh, Erickson is doing a fantastic job of, of holding the suspense and the anticipation, you know, it's like when you're a kid waiting for Christmas, you know, like it's two or three days away and you're just, you're so ecstatic to, to wake up that morning. Like I'm super excited to see the end of this book, I guess, or potentially the series. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's start with one book here. Let's finish that. (laughs) Yes. Yes, that is true. Let's finish this one. But yeah, I just thought that was an interesting piece of, you know, information that I kind of gathered about Rake, but also at the same time, like Baruch on top of telling Rake that he, he's, you know, he's got, he's got things handled, which I don't think Rake thinks that Baruch does, but also Baruch begins to explain to Rake that, you know, there's going to be a lot of upset people attending if you come. And they're kind of like taking little like minor jabs at each other, you know, Baruch kind of saying, yeah, you know, only if you dress up as a Tistiande warlord, you know. So there was definitely some humorous parts in this section. Yeah, I I guess I don't, you know, it's it's been, you know, better than a week since I've read this chapter. Um, so I'm trying to remember, but I, I guess I don't remember... I guess picking up on that humor um, myself. I did. I did like, you know, when uh, he's, you know, they're t- talking about Icarium and you know, Rake kind of takes over that conversation. I thought that was kind of neat, you know, because he was, you know, he was there. Right. He was. He was there. Explaining everything about his interaction. So, I don't know if Trell. I mean, in this section, too, they don't say specifically what a trell is, but they elaborate on it a little bit as they call it a company of the trell mapo. So my guess, based on that information, is that you would probably be correct and that it's some type of um, group of people. Yeah, it must be. I mean, I don't know if it's like a, you know, I, I don't know, I guess. I'm not sure. I, I'm giving up on that thought right now. I don't know where I was going with it. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, but, I mean, I guess the only thing that I would add to about that little part about Rake and, and Icarum and, and Osric is that it something about Brood, Brood, Caladan Brood could do to keep them apart and then all it really was said it was that it was an old argument. So, I mean, that, that tells me that Caladan Brood has been next to Rake for a long time. So there's definitely some history there. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that either. But it was, it was just kind of a cool little segue, I guess, from the current moment to kind of be taken away and, and have Rake explained like yeah you should totally heed his warnings because you know uh i i 
met him, you know? And then a joke. <laughs> I, um, is it, maybe this is maybe just me overthinking it, but did you, did you get a, a feeling, uh, this whole, like, you know, wheel thing, the, you know, the clock that Marilio is describing, did you get a little bit of, of like a small wheel of time? of you know just ages coming and going kind of a thing because i did uh a little bit i guess i i almost thought more of like it's gonna sound stupid at first but like kind of like a cuckoo clock at first but something obviously like much larger than that you know like a mechanical year passes some kind yeah and then uh you know the year comes to an end and it spits out a name you know how or decides to do that but that's kind of where my mind went makes sense um different thoughts yeah i just for whatever reason it reminded me of the wheel of time with the whole you know how they pretty much how he starts off every book so um just if there are you know the love hate i forget what they all were but if those just kind of like cycle again, or maybe I'm not understanding it, but you know, when that age of moon's tears comes again, maybe it'll be a little bit different. Right. Right. Maybe it'll be a little bit different, but yeah. And then um, I think this is also another small, subtle hint of Krupp being the eel is because Krupp tells Roald to give him a message from the eel and that message essentially tells Baruch that they will meet on the eve of the Fete, which I believe would be later on in the day that is currently in the chapter. And that the eel finds shared information and cooperation intriguing. So, because I know we touched on that a little bit last chapter, where, you know, Bar- Baruch is attempting to, or threatening to expose Circle Breaker, and then Krupp starts his fucking profusely sweating stuff again um and then is all like i will talk to him on your behalf so and now that's kind of right that's last i was watching for that yeah um this time and and he was profusely sweating again you know like you had pointed out so i was like all right it's a good a good catch a good detail yeah but it just you know he's nervous you know he wants to keep a secret to himself and kind of keep keep up the the strings the puppet strings so to speak but um i guess the only other thing that i had for this section was the very very end of it um you know rake suddenly you know leaves and baruch didn't have time to think about him leaving but to us the reader the author tells us that it was baruch's first mistake so i'm sitting here and i'm like why would the author reveal this to us because i find it really interesting like is rake about to start shit or maybe not necessarily start shit but for whatever mysterious or but whatever mysterious plan is he setting in motion is he going to instigate the killing of council members that are in favor of neutrality with the Malzine Empire? Will Turban Orr be taken out before Marilio or Valak can get to him? You know, like, like what is Rake up to right now? 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Hmm. But good thoughts, I think. Yeah. Because um, what luck would it be if Turban Orr was already taken out before Rell could heal up? You know, Amarillo doesn't have to face him. That would be some luck then, yes. Not that, you know, Marilio or Ray or Ralic are, you know, coin bearers, so to speak, but they are protecting him, so to speak. Right. Yeah. I don't think that it's, you know, too far fetched to say that some of Crocus's luck is an extension of himself to others around him. But yeah. No, I don't think I don't think that's a stretch either. Yeah, that was just my thought. I just it uh, it was good to see Mammoth alive and well, so to speak. And I guess the only other thing that I could think of uh, to talk about was Mammoth knew that Crocus was a coin bearer this whole time. That's what uh, he tells Baruch when Baruch is all dumbfounded when Mammoth brings up Crocus's name. Yeah, I was kind of I was wondering why he was like nervous about asking, you know, on that. It didn't, didn't. I guess I didn't quite pick up on that. I was like, well, why would he be nervous about it? Right. Yeah, I guess I don't I don't know. I think that um I don't I guess I don't really know what Baruch's stance on Opon is, you know? I mean, outside of the fact that the coin bearer needs to protect him, so I would assume that Baruch's ideas and, you know, maybe way of life align with Opon a bit, I guess. Elpon just seems to be this kind of overlaying character or god that we don't really get a whole lot of perspective or motivations from. You know, we just kind of have to see what it is that they are doing with the people they're influencing. I guess it's kind of, I don't want to say there, but... I mean, that would make sense. (laughs) But yeah, I hope that, uh, I hope that it, you know, maybe goes into a little bit as to how Mammoth figured it out, you know. Yeah, it would be that would be neat to see. You know, did he come across some sort of vision or yeah, what was it? Right. Yeah, outside of that, those are those are all my thoughts on uh, this particular section. Thought it was very well written and uh it was nice to kind of see more of the dynamic between these two characters. Yeah, they, it it almost kind of feels like a married couple a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, they do kind of squabble a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll have to see where that goes. Anything else you wanted to add here for that section? Not at all, no. All right. Well, this next one will go pretty quick. A woman who had a shaved head and a long robe ran, screaming from the gates. Adjunct Lauren stepped out of the way and let the priestess through. The whole city was partying like it was 1999. It had overflowed beyond the walls of the city itself into a worry town. She rubbed her knife wound. The barrow seemed to have slowed the healing process. She approached the gate to the city and noticed that only one of the two guards was paying attention to her, though it was a quick glance as his focus returned to the rest of the mob. She could feel Whiskey Jack and the rest of the squad were in the city. She made her way towards the lower city. I don't necessarily have any thoughts on uh, this particular section. kind of sounds like a the Fete is starting to get a little rambunctious and we know that she's on our way into Darugistan. Yeah, sounds like it's uh it's a bender here. Things are getting a little wild. People running through the streets, 
screaming. Everybody's probably getting drunk. Like, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I didn't really have any thoughts either. All right. It's kind of a setup piece, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For, uh, or I believe, the section. Showing the setting maybe more so, but... Yeah. Yeah, take it away. Cool. Circle Breaker pushes himself from the wall and walks a slow circle on the cobblestones, pausing to adjust his helmet. The other guard with him asks if he's feeling anxious. Circle Breaker plays this off by explaining that there was a riot a couple years back. The other guard, an older man, explains that he was there for that and remembers it well, and observes that this is not Circle Breaker's regular post. Circle Breaker explained that he's filling in for a friend and his usual shift is at the Despot's Barbican. Circle Breaker shifts his helmet again, hoping that the unseen eyes had seen his signal. The woman who had passed through had matched the eel's description perfectly. The older guard squints up at Despot's Barbican and admits that it's a grisly shift. He starts grumbling about how hard slash long they have been working, and worst of all, they are Empire agents in the city. Circle Breaker agrees and adds that it doesn't get any better. The older guard begins to complain about not being able to join his family at the Fete, because after this, he'd have to go stand around a bunch of council members. Circle Breaker smiles to himself, as this is exactly the station that the eel wanted him to be at. Taking the opportunity, Circle Breaker places a hand on Barut, which is the older guard's name, shoulder and offers to take Barut's next position. Barut smiled and thanked Circle Breaker exuberantly. The only thing that Circle Breaker wants in return is some time off in the future. Barut tells him that whatever he wants is his and then comes to the realization that he doesn't know his name. Circle Breaker tells Barut his name. I'm like, God damn it, why can't we fucking know his name too? The level of suspense around this character is driving me fucking crazy. And I've got a feeling he's going to be throughout this story the whole time as some minor character that gets mentioned here and there. Like, I feel like that's what it's going to come to. Like, it's going to be like this one big, ah, God damn it, it was him, you know? Yeah, I want to know who it is too. Like, it's, yeah, so this... This other character gets to know who it is, but we don't. Like, come on. Right. Just fucking tell me already. I don't know. <laughs> but imagine in due time, we will find out. <laughs> right. The uh, And again, here's another hint of Krupp, right? Being the eel is how would he be able to convey in Lauren's description to Circle Breaker because sir, the only interaction from anybody from Jerugistan had with Lorne was where? I'm kind of drawing a blank here. The Gedrobi Hills. Who interacted with Lorne? Oh, yeah. So Krupp, granted, didn't get a very good, a long look at her before she rendered him unconscious by knocking him off his ass. Literally. <laughs> and onto his own. Off one ass onto the other. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah, I just, I don't know. The level of suspense around Circle Breaker is, like, I just want to know who he is. Give it to us. Give it. Do it. Do it now. I guess those are the only two things that I had. I think that it's kind of convenient that uh, Circle Breaker 
got this opportunity to take over for Barut's station at the Fete, um, which from what I understand is Lady Simtel's estate. Um, I didn't really synopsisize that too well, but it sounds like that is where his next station was. So Circle Breaker will be there in his in his stead. Yeah, I don't think that was by accident. You think it was Opon influencing? Uh, I think it was influenced somehow. Somebody's pulling some strings. I mean, would you say that Krupp slash the eel would be on the side of Opon? Uh, that I don't know about, I guess. I, I'm i not really sure. I, I kind of almost feel like Krupp or the eel is going to be on, try to be on whichever side is winning. It- so whatever happens... You know, he can make a play either way, you know, just to keep living, I guess. I mean, is there a clear winner at this point? I don't know how you, how you feel on that side of things. but I mean, I don't think there's a clear winner at this point of the game. But a lot of his actions are, I guess, in lieu of protecting the coin bearer, which we know is directly influenced by Opon. So I would assume that he, like Baruch, has some similar interests as far as protecting Jerugistan from the Malazan Empire. And the Malazan Empire would not be too heavily fond of Opon being uh, on their enemy's side, so to speak. Yeah, that's a good point. Like I mentioned before, I think it's hard to, to really understand Opon's motivations because we don't get it directly. But there's got to be a reason why he's influencing Krakus, or rather... Yeah, we just don't really know the the end game, I guess, yet. No. I'm sure, you know, once once it'll, once it's revealed, it's probably going to be like, oh, maybe I should have seen that coming. Maybe. Maybe. Or it won't be as big of a, a, you know... Or maybe not. Yeah, who knows? I guess we'll just have to raffle. Keep reading. That's right. Yeah. I can I can do that. <laughs> I can keep reading. Only after we finish our episodes, though. Yes. <laughs> cool. Well, with that, uh, I'm cool to move on. Since everyone was getting wild outside on the streets, inside was pretty much empty. An old woman watched from behind the counter. Three men sat at a table in the corner. One of the men told her to take a seat and join the game. Um, anyways, uh, Lauren enters here at some point and, and sees the three men in the, the table in the corner playing a game. Uh, and she replies that she doesn't gamble, uh, but that isn't what they meant. So she takes a seat and asks for their names. They introduce themselves, and she says she's impressed with their intel and asks after the sergeant. Fiddler says he's out making the rounds and should be back in like 10 minutes or so. They have the back room of this, quote, rat trap and dug under the wall into an abandoned house so they have an escape route. She figures out uh, that Fiddler is the saboteur, Mallet is the healer. They go back to their card game making new rules. They are using a deck of dragons. Lauren asks if Fiddler is a talent. Should he be using that deck? He basically tells her to fuck off and mind her own business. They've been playing for five years and have not had any problems. Uh, which is kind of a ballsy thing to say. If she just wants, if she wants in, just to say so, he'll even give her the first card. It's the throne inverted, and she owes them each ten gold. 
how lucky. Uh, that is a year's salary. Also, it is what they call the Empire Guilt Coin, paid to the families once they are confirmed dead. Uh, Lauren feels someone behind her. It is Whiskey Jack. Whiskey Jack says, welcome to Drujistan. Here's the report. We're still trying to contact the Assassin's Guild. All the mining is done and ready to go. And we've only lost one member so far. We've been pretty lucky. Oh, one other thing. There are Tisty Andy in the city hunting us. That doesn't interest Lauren a whole lot. At the moment, she wants to know who it is they lost. It is the recruit, Sorry, She's been missing for a few days. Uh, Lauren says that they don't know for a fact if she's dead then. Whiskey Jack asks if there's a problem. She's only recruit. Some thugs probably off her in a back alley somewhere. Lauren says, actually, she was a spy and a really good one. A thug didn't kill her, and she's not dead. She's hiding because she knows I'd be looking for her. Been looking for her for three years. Whiskey Jack says if she hadn't kept all this information to herself, things could have been arranged. But since she didn't share this, she's on her own. Lauren says she is the adjunct of the Empress. The mission is under her command now, and there will be no more of this independent crap. Whiskey Jack will take orders from her from now on. Whiskey Jack accepts and asks what the orders are. Lauren says... She ain't fucking around. She doesn't care how mad he is. They need to talk in private. Whiskey Jack takes her to the back room to talk. Huh. Do you uh, do you get a sense of mutiny here? I get the sense that Lauren does not really like what she's seeing. I don't know. I guess just the level of disrespect that everybody gives her is just crazy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, they're I... not taking her seriously at all at this point. But. No, mind mind your own business. Like that's kind of uh, like not something you say to somebody in her position. I don't think. No, not at all. Not at all. And nor does Lauren do anything about it. You know. Yeah, maybe she should have. Maybe. Um, but I mean, she's you know just to kind of crack down a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, what is she really going to do? I mean, she's not she's not a sorceress, from what I understand. She has something that can deflect sorcery, but. In itself, she's still human. I guess I was, you know, more in the way of like, you know, telling them that they need to respect her or something like that. But that's also kind of one of those things like, I don't think these guys are going to respect somebody that hasn't earned it from them. You know, like, it's not something that's going to be just given away because you say so. Like, you're going to have to work for it. Well, right. And, and also, you know, putting putting myself in, you know, uh, the Ninth Squad's shoes here right like at this point in the story they've uncovered that the you know basically the plan to sabotage the bridge burners is coming from the empress herself which if you're looking at the you know the right hand woman of the empress are you knowing what you know going to just be all compliant but no you're not yeah, you're right. You're you're probably going to be standoffish like these guys were. Right. Yeah, you're going to be pretty defensive. And I mean, like, even even making the quip about like, oh, he an inverted throne, and now you owe us each ten gold, a year's salary, also the empire guilt coin paid to the families once they are confirmed dead. You know, like, if that's not fucking sarcasm, I don't know what else is. But I just thought that was <laughs> beautiful. Yeah, it was a pretty good, pretty good moment. Just uh, kind of like a just throwing a middle finger up there a little bit. 
Yeah. I feel like I feel like most of some of Lauren's thoughts, uh, while they are not really heard in this particular section, the next section does have quite a bit of what she has to say about current events. But I guess I didn't really have a ton for this particular section outside of just the level of defiance that they were showing her. Yeah, I I didn't really have anything either. So, I, I mean, yeah, we can... We can move on here. Um, I'm ready for you. Sweet. Lauren reaches down to the bed's top blanket and tells Whiskey Jack that there is blood on it. Whiskey, Whiskey Jack explains to Lauren that a soldier that one of his men had a brush with a tisty on the assassin and that he'll recover. Lauren is in disbelief as she believes that all the tisty are with Caladan brood in the north. Elaborating further... Lorne disbelievingly tells Whiskey Jack that the Lord of Moonspawn has left and is now hunting down Malzahn soldiers. She ends her statement by saying it was highly unlikely. Whiskey Jack scowls and tells Lorne that they had a scuffle on the rooftops with at least a dozen Tistiande, and that it's likely that they've made alliances with Jerusalem's rulers, thus attacking the Assassin's Guild so that Whiskey Jack and his squad could not make contact, which has worked so far. Lorne, still with doubt, questions Whiskey Jack as to why they haven't attempted the assassinations themselves. Whiskey Jack explains that he's way ahead of her, as he has his man negotiating to work as private arms for a highbrow at this evening's fete, explaining to Lorne that anyone who is anybody will be there, even Jerusalem's mages, rulers, and councilmen. Capping off by explaining that his men have have enough munitions left over, to make this party, this a party that Jerusalem will never forget. Lauren battles her frustration. Still indignant about the Atistiande, she finally asks Whiskey Jack why would someone hire them. Whiskey Jack smiles cynically, cynically and tells them, and tells her that there will be city guards there, but they won't have a bargast. Who wouldn't want a bargast there to look over things? It's what makes the nobility drool at the level of protection they'd feel. Whiskey Jack admits that it's a risk, but asks Lorne if she has something better in mind. Lorne could see the challenge in, challenge in his tone. After some thoughts, she finally admits to Whiskey Jack that his plan is sound. She then asks whose estate this fete will be held at. Whiskey Jack explains that it's some woman named Simtel, and she apparently is quite a looker and in cahoots with several council members. Lorne simply says, very well and proceeds to tell him that she'll be back in a couple of hours, as she has some things to take care of. Striding to the door, Whiskey Jack calls upon the adjunct, and as she turns to his attention, Whiskey Jack reveals a tunnel that will lead her to, the, to a shack that will allow her access to the Daru district. Thorne was irritated and simply said it was unnecessary and then left the room. Quick Ben emerges from the tunnel. Quick Ben tells Whiskey Jack that she had almost walked in on him, Whiskey Jack says, nah, I wouldn't have let her. Anything on Kalam? Quick Ben says, no, and that Kalam was running out of patience. Quick Ben then asks, Whiskey Jack thinks that Lauren was fooled. Whiskey Jack laughs and explains that Lauren was reeling. Quick Ben then mentions that Paran said Lauren was going to drop something off, and if she did. Whiskey Jack says that she did not. Quick Ben responds by saying things are getting tight. The door opens and Trotz walks in. Whiskey Jack asks him if he had success, and Trotz nods. Basically, through 
this whole interaction with Warren and Whiskey Jack, she is frustrated only because she, the entire time mentally, is complimenting Whiskey Jack because she would have done damn near the same things that he is telling her. But on top of that frustration, she also is in disbelief that the Tistiande are in Jerudistan, which we as the readers, we know that's true. But Lorne has no fucking idea because the last that she had been reported was that they were still in the north. Surprise. Surprise, motherfucker. Yeah, kind of a big one. <laughs> yeah. But it's just it's just funny the the level of like Lauren isn't being humble at all, and I don't understand why she's not why she's got such a big head, especially when it comes to Whiskey Jack. Is it simply because he's outplayed her by essentially doing the same thing that she would anyway, or is it simply just because she's full of pride? And what like this seems to be like a completely different Lauren. That we experienced when she was traveling with Tool. You know, like Lauren kind of seems like she's the big bad bitch again, you know? Yeah, uh, some, but I, some of it seems like it's a pride thing to me. You know, I that is kind of how I view it to some extent. Like, I'm the adjunct of the Empress. You will respect my position. Yeah, like she's going to, you know, she's going to take care of this and you know, make sure she's recognized for it. And I think she's trying to, you know, I guess I don't know if she's going to get some out of it, you know, her own slice of the kingdom. I'd probably not, but some sort of reward to look good. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. I just, again, it goes kind of back to the previous section. You know, there's a little bit of defiance there. And some of the, alongside of the thoughts that she she has is in you know whiskey jack kind of challenging her with his tone you know her thoughts surround whiskey jack and his you know demotion to sergeant hoping that his demotion would break him she feels this way based on the bridge burner's reputation at pale whiskey jack had stood at the side of Dasim ultor and would not hesitate to challenge lauren's every command so the idea is, from what I understand from Adjunct and, and you know, Empress Lucine, is that Whiskey Jack, also around during the time of the old emperor, was also at the sign of emperor, emperor's like um, uh, first sword, I think is what they call him, which I would assume is just kind of like the you know, director of defense or whatever the fuck that title is at the White House. Um, sure. Whiskey Jack was pretty much right under him and would sit there and, you know, argue battle tactics with Dasim Ultar. So Lucene and, and Lorne's, I guess, more or less plan to demote him to sergeant they had hoped that it would break him, but I think part of her frustration is that it didn't seem to have broken him. Yeah, he definitely seems like it's it's more bend bend than break. Right. Yeah. Like I don't know. I think Whiskey Jack's doing good. I don't 
I don't have any complaints about him as a character. I don't see any no. weaknesses, so to speak. I don't feel like we've got a ton of time in his head, though, either. No. But I think given this new newish information, you know, it kind of shows how adaptable he's been given the circumstances, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's he's very adaptable. And, you know, it seems like he's the guy, you know, if you need to switch tactics, he's he's not going to be afraid to do it, you know? Right. If something's not working, change it. I think he's that guy. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, part of it, Whiskey Jack not breaking plays along with Lucene and Agic Lorne, but really kind of walking on eggshells, especially with Dujek, because Dujek and, you know, his whole squad are very loyal to the idea of bridge burners. And that is also something that she thinks about. So I think that Lorne finds herself in a precarious position because while she still needs these guys to be used as tools, she also knows that eventually there's, you know, like they're going to be eliminated or the plan is, is to have them taken out. So it's just, it's just a very fine line that I don't even know how I would be able to handle that type of situation if I was in Lauren's shoes. Yeah, it's more responsibility than what I would want to deal with. And this is more of a funnier moment, but when Quick Ben comes out of the tunnel and is all like, Whiskey Jack, she had almost walked in on me. It just reminds me of a teenager <laughs> being walked in on by their mom, you know? Like, is just for some reason that's what came to mind. I don't know why. <laughs> Whoops. I made a comment earlier about using sorcery for that kind of stuff a long time ago. You you certainly did. Mm-hmm. See? So I'm not wrong. Another, you are not wrong. Another thing that come, came to culmination. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, I thought there was more coming there from what you were going to say. No. Nope. And then I realized it wasn't. No, nope, I'm done. Yeah, you would be. <laughs> Okay, back on a serious stuff. Um, so we have our fun there for a minute. Yeah, we got to get it in there real quick. That's what she said. Oh, but <laughs> all right. Like my thought was, you know, did did is he wondering like if she knew he was there? Was kind of my thought. Mm. Gotcha. I don't, what were you thinking? I mean, basically everything that was explained about being hired, you know, him telling Lauren that they have somebody working on getting hired at Lady Simtel's estate. That doesn't sound like the plan that Whiskey Jack had said to Paran. So was this an attempt to fool the adjunct? You know what I mean? Like that, I guess both of those aren't aligning. So I don't know if that's what they mean by fooled or if this is just an extension of that plan that was given to Paran. Hmm. But interesting. either way, I don't have a good feeling about it. I don't really have anything to add to that other than, yeah, that would, it, it, it certainly seems precarious and uneasy, doesn't it? It does. 
So, and that kind of brings me into maybe a little bit of a similar, because Whiskey Jack asks Trots uh, if he had success, and Trots nods. So, what is what is it that Trots had success with? It, it could be hundreds of things. I'm assuming it has something to do with the plan that wasn't discussed with Lauren, or this may per- pertain to the being hired for the guard. Like, is Trots the one that was sent to go see if they could get hired? I guess it's hard to decipher which plan is true. And if that is the case, then why did they fool Lauren with? So kind of counterpoint to my last observation, I feel like there's a lot of of information here that could either be related or tied together, or they are combating each other. I don't know. Yeah, I guess I just I don't know what to make sense of it. Something else we'll just have to wait and see on. I think so, yeah. But um, I guess with that, do you want to uh, do you want to move on? Did you have anything else to add to this section? I did not have anything else to add. Gotcha. All right. Crocus and Absalar watch from the top of the tower, looking every now and again at the party going on in the city. Despite the celebration, everyone realized their place between Moonspawn and the Malazan Empire. The city seemed on edge. Crocus commented that from above, the city didn't seem as impressive. Though Absalar said it's one of the biggest she's ever seen, she thinks it's as big as Unta. Crocus says that's the capital, right? She says yes, but she's never been there. Crocus thinks she's being weird and asks how she could know how big the city is then. Absalar has no answer. He remembered something Call said, her being possessed. There were two sets of memories fighting for dominance in her head. His thoughts went back to his uncle and if he had shown up yet, and he almost felt a little guilty for escaping, escaping Mies and Neralta. He sat along the wall at the top of the tower and looked at the dead body near him. Yet he never felt in danger. Absalar asked if they were waiting for dark. Crocus nodded. Absalar asks if they'll look for Chalice then. He says yes. The rest of the family will be at the Fete, and getting into the estate should be easy since they have a massive garden that resembles a forest. She asks if he'll be recognized once he joins the guests. Also, there will be a lot of people. It might take hours to find her. He replies he'll think of something, and he will be dressed up as a thief, and everyone will be in costume. She asks what she's supposed to do. Just hide in the bushes? Crocus snaps a little bit and says, maybe Uncle Mallet will be there. Then everything will be okay. They'll figure out how to get her home. That is what she wants, right? Absalar says she misses her dad. Crocus isn't sure if she's trying to convince herself or him. Epsilar says she's fine and is managing to keep things together. There's something inside her helping her stay in control, but when she gets scared, it protects her, and she doesn't mean to push him away. Um, that last sentence or two was written much much better than how I summarized it. Uh, it was quite a good bit of writing. So <clears throat> what was it that was better written than summarized like what what about her being protected just how how she like described it um i don't know it was just really really well done um just a a good 
description, a good visual, I guess, on it. Hmm. Um, I just, I liked it a lot. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I did. But this, uh, go ahead. No, I was just agreeing with you. This, uh, this is where I said we would maybe talk about something later, you know, the, uh, the costumes or whatever, because, uh, you know, he said he's, he's not really going to be in costume, but he's going to be dressed up as a thief, right? Everybody's going to be in costumes and all this and that. So, um, I can't remember exactly how we were talking about it, but I knew there was, I remembered something about, uh, costumes. Gotcha. Gotcha. So do you think that uh, Krupp and all of those guys will dress as thieves as well? I don't know what they're going to do. I am not sure. Hmm. Huh. Do you think that... Uh, I'm curious as to what is protecting her when she gets scared. Like, protecting her thoughts. And also, the other side of that. So that tells us that during Sari's possession, Cotillion had been to Unta. So I know that the very beginning of the book, Paran goes home for a little bit. So was she stalking Paran? Maybe. It's just a thought that came out to me just now. So it's weird how that happens when they just kind of pop into your head like that. It does, yeah. So does this mean that, like, in the middle of this giant party, like, Crocus, dressed as a thief, is going to pull Chalice aside and then what? Talk to her? Yeah, it doesn't seem like he's got a very good plan thought out here, does it? Not at all. Not at all. But it doesn't really... (laughs) He's just... He's he's definitely winging it. (laughs) Yes, he's definitely winging it. And... He still doesn't answer Absalar's question. Like, where is she supposed to be? You know? I mean... Yeah, I I mean, that's... He definitely doesn't really give a shit, does he? He doesn't seem like he really does. No, he's just kind of worried about himself. Right. He definitely wants to confront Chalice for, you know, putting him on the the list for the high gallows. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. It was nice of you. I appreciate it. (laughs) Right. Bitch. (laughs) But yeah, I, uh, I guess I don't have any other really huge questions. Um, another thought that's kind of coming to my head as I'm thinking about it is just this whole this whole protecting her thing is got me rattled again. And I'm wondering if it's possible that maybe, you know, Riga, again, I'm going to bring this back. She's a seer, right? So maybe she foresaw Sari's possession. And before she died, I know she she did something. I feel like that's what made me think that she was also in there. Um, by the way that she talked and the eyes appearing old and, and shit like that. But that could also have been Cotillion too. But what if it what if Riga gave her some type of mental something and that is what's protecting her now? That could be kind of like a uh like a, uh, I guess, a parting gift of some sort, I guess. Yeah. Before I die, take this. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know why I keep getting hung up on Riga. I should just let her die, even though, I don't know. I still feel like something, something is there. Yeah, you may. I mean, we'll see if you're onto something. Well, you could very well could be. 
very well could be. But outside of that, that that's all the thoughts that I had for this section. The only other thing I really had was just, you know, they got a garden that could be mistaken for a forest. Like, they must have a pretty big place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, these are hoity-toities. Well, that was the only other thing I really had. So you can uh, take it away here whenever you're ready. Sweet. Within the shadows of the stairwell, Sarah studied the two figures. She had embraced her corralled Galen Warren and put layers of defensive wards around her. No more of this invisible enemy shit. And if they wanted her, they would have to show themselves and then she'd kill them. As for the corn bear and the girl, where could they get possibly escape to? In this tower? Preparing for her attack, she unsheathed her daggers. With her ward protecting her back, she started to advance. Just then, she felt the knife point under her chin and underneath her left shoulder blade. A voice close to her ear tells her to give Rake his warning. As Rake and, and her will only get it once. It was a voice she recognized. The coin bearer shall not be harmed, and the games are done. Try again, and Surratt would die. Furious, Surratt calls this thing a bastard, and that Rake will be angry. The unknown assailant tells him, tells her that it will be in vain, and to deliver the message to Rake. Slowly, the knife point under her chin is removed, and she nods an acknowledgement to this. She tells the assailant that this will not be forgotten. A low chuckle is heard, and in their reply, they say, compliments of the prince, Surratt. Take it up with our mutual friend. The daggers left her flesh. Surratt sheaths her daggers and snaps open her corralled Ghislaine Warren and vanishes. Okay. So, I could have sworn that the prince is Caladan Brood. From what I can recall, Crone did inform him of the coin bearer that night in the tent. And then after their conversation, he bolted. So, and I know that Brood and Brood has some types of feelings towards Rake. But I could have sworn that he's the only character. Oh, no, Prince Kaaz. Kind of forgot about him. Yeah. Compliments of Prince Kaaz. Take it up with our mutual friend. So does that mean that somebody from the Crimson Guard is there? Sent by Prince Kaaz? And to take it up with our mutual friend would be Caladan Brood or Rake? Yeah, I there's just so much mystery in that section that I can't I can't fucking make heads or tails of it, you know? And again, this is also part of the, the just the huge amount of suspense in these last three chapters where I'm just like, oh my God, can I just, can I just have it already? <laughs> I know it's really ramping up here as we get towards the end of this book for sure. Yeah, it's, it's totally got me on the edge of my seat and I'll, all I want to do is keep reading. Yeah, it's, it's hard to just put it down. Yeah, I think that uh, when we're going through Dead House Gates, I, like I said a couple episodes ago, I will 
probably be reading this in the background. So then that way I don't have to take it chapter by chapter. I could just read, you know, and kind of get everything in a, in a one fell swoop thing. Yeah, you, you'll have to kind of, I wonder how that'll go for you. I feel like I'd finish in a couple of weeks. Like if, I can't imagine it would cause any problems or anything, but I'm just... it might give us some things to go back and and talk about. But but once we finish, I think that we can we can put this book to rest as far as the podcast is concerned, unless we're you know reading something in in the newer in the books after that directly correlates to the Gardens of the Moon, you know. Yeah. So uh, that's a good point. But yeah, I what what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on this prince and mutual friend thing here? I guess I would like to know for sure. Like I, I guess I would be pretty confident you're probably right on Prince Cause. But you know who's this person that keeps you know that snuck up on you know again gets a, a knife to her throat and um, somebody pretty talented. Oh right, to be able to pull that off. And do you think this is the same person this whole time? Yeah, I kind of do, because I don't know, like, the likelihood of, you know, multiple people messing with her. Like, to me, it just doesn't seem to make much sense. That is true. I would agree. I have a feeling, yeah, when I read this section, I'm like, okay, so this person is clearly the one that has been fucking with her, so. That's, yeah, that's my thought on it. I mean, I don't even know what else it would be. I mean, who... Who else could it be? I mean, again, this seems to be another player for protecting the coin bearer as as this is said, you know? So, it's just, it's funny because Baruch seems to be on the side. He's also protecting the coin bearer, but Rake isn't. But they're, but Rake and Baruch are, you know, alliances. So, it's just, there's just so many, like, things happening all at once here sometimes it's just hard to make heads or tail of it yeah it is it's just kind of all over the place it's kind of batshit crazy but it just it adds like a new level of of understanding to this book you know it's just like while i understand what's happening at the same time like there's just so much mystery and things that have left to be revealed yeah, there really is like, and things kind of keep getting added. You know, it doesn't. We don't get a whole lot of resolve before something else gets added on. No, not at all. Not at all. But all in due time, I've learned to trust trust the author and trust the book. Eventually, things will get capped off, and you just got to keep reading. Yeah, we'll see what happens. You know, when we get some. Really big boy chapters going on. Right. Right. Those might have to be two parters. We'll have to see how long we talk. <laughs> yeah. But we'll just take it, you know, one chapter at a time. That's right. Um, but yeah, those were those were my only two things that got me hung up on that section. Everything else kind of I don't think I've got anything to add to what you said or your points. All right. Well, if you want to, uh, if you want to continue on, go for it. This is probably my longest section, and I have probably the most to say about it. <laughs> Krokus heard something, 
His hands went to his knives instantly. Absalar asked what was wrong, and he tells her to be quiet. His heart was pounding. He says it's nothing, and he's, quote, ducking at shadows. They'll soon be off. Oh, so ducking wasn't a uh, autocorrect? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> okay, good, good. Wouldn't it have been funny if they would have autocorrected it to fucking? Yeah, it would have been funny. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, okay. I think, I, not much to say here, I think. But, you know, he's obviously, he's Crocus is, he's antsy, he's jumpy, he's nervous, you know, and um, I mean, he's, he's ready to put his plan into motion, at least the part that he's got planned and you know, I guess he'll kind of figure it out the rest as he goes. Right. And then he hears something and then, you know, it's fight or flight at that point. But yeah, just sees nothing, sees shadow. And I, if I remember right, I, I thought I remember thinking that it was Sea Rat watching them. Well, I mean, I would imagine that it maybe, would have been. Maybe uh, I'm not remembering that right. It would have been the commotion of. Sea rat getting assailed again, or her, you know, GTFOing, you know. Right. Yeah, that was kind of kind of what I thought was her taking off, and her, you know, maybe he was just hearing the the dust settle, so to speak, you know, on on that. Yeah, that makes sense. So I feel like that's kind of how I remember things, but maybe not. Gotcha. Well, should we move on? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. It was the age of wind, struggling in his mother's wake. It was Reyes' first lesson in power. Like the many ways of wind, the hunt for domination would shape his life. Reyes' mother was the first to flee his shaping of power, proclaiming the sundering of blood, and thus cutting him free. He would dominate and must learn early that those who resist will be destroyed. While Reyes feared community pronouncing society to be the birthplace of tyranny, Reyes hungered for it. The power he commanded insisted on subjects. His first thought was to subjugate other Jagad, but more often than not, they either escaped him or he was forced to kill them. Into his path came the Amass, creatures who struggled against his will. The Amass themselves played the game of tyranny over their lands. They could not defeat him, he had rejoiced in the slavery of the Amass, feeling loved when they would worship him as God, building cities and temples for him to be worshipped. It was the Jaghut that he had been unprepared for. The Jaghut came in numbers as a community whose sole purpose was to destroy his empire, to imprison him. His lesson had been learned, and no matter what the world had become since his time, Reyes was ready for it. His limb creaked at first, the effort of digging himself from the frozen earth had incapacitated him for a time. He felt ready to walk the tunnel into new land. He sensed the other, the others, ones who had removed the ward and the traps of Omatos Falak. Perhaps his worshippers were still here and were awaiting him to walk out of the barrow. He could feel the finest far away, but that wouldn't stop him from recovering it. He could feel the absence of Omatos Falak in the world above. No one would be able to oppose him. Moving through the slush and mud near the entrance of the barrow, he explodes the barrow's barrier and in floods sunlight. The Jaghut Tyrant exits the barrow and walks into the light. 
Hmm. I don't know. I guess what I got from this section, which was pretty jarring at first to read, was that it was kind of like, um, you know, you know how they always say that, like, when you're on the verge of death, you see, like, your life pass before your eyes, but just kind of like a reverse notion of that. He seems to be waking from his very deep slumber and is maybe having flashes of memories from what he did before he was imprisoned. This is kind of the sense that I get from this section. Um, you know, talking about his mom and, you know, how, you know, he more or less comes into tyranny, um, talking about community and society and that being the birthplace of, of tyranny and just how much Reist loves that shit, you know, down to talking about enslaving the mass, even though they are no better. Uh, and down to finally when the Jag Hut finally came and basically did something about him, you know? Yeah, it's, there's a lot of interesting stuff. That, and one thing I caught as you were reading uh, that I, it just kind of came to me now, or as you were reading, because I definitely didn't think of it while I read this chapter, but, you know, it says raised fears community, but yet he wants to, rule over everybody, you know, and have that community under him. It just seems kind of ironic to me. It is ironic. Do you think it's because in a community where he is just a civilian, he has no control, but if he is a tyrant, he has control over that community? I mean, I feel like that's a pretty subtle way of, of you know, kind of giving us a, a good picture of what Braist is. I don't know if maybe control is the word I would use, but if he can project his, you know, like fearsomeness, you know, and kind of bend these people to his will through fear. So that, you know, there isn't an uprising against him. You know, everybody's too scared to do anything. He's above them. then. it's kind of the sense that I get. He wants to be better. Gotcha. Which I think is funny. It's kind of hard to put in. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. It just, um, as you bring that up, it it brings me back to some of the the few conversations that, um, like Morn and Baruch and Dujak and Whiskey Jack, Tattersale, you know, those conversations around previous empires. And I think the, the one thing that, Erickson maybe really try trying to drive home is is the fact that the previous emperor em, emperor oh my god I can't talk emperor um it, it, he he went above I guess he he went against the grain as far as like leadership goes because in those conversations it was quite heavily described that all other emperors emperors ruled with kind of like an iron fist you know they they commanded fear. Whereas the previous emperor commanded loyalty. So I think that is kind of maybe one of the bigger takeaways from this book is that, you know, Lauren and Lucene are having such a hard time uh, getting people in line is because I don't, I don't know. I'm assuming she's probably driving for fear 
rather than loyalty. But if your predecessor is commanded loyalty, then you're going to have followers that you reign over that are not loyal to you. So I think that she's probably got a little bit of a, a bigger hurdle. And uh, yeah, just the juxtaposition between this Jaghut tyrant and, and the previous emperor and even current events is just, it's all just such a beautiful spider web, I guess, is all I can say. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like it would be harder to rule through fear. Just you got to, I suppose, even if you're not ruling through fear, you still got to watch your back. Somebody's probably going to try to, you know, stab you in the back. But I feel like it would be more likely if you're using fear as your tactic versus just doing what's right and good for the people. Right. Yes, exactly. It's just a, it was a nice contrast, you know, uh, as far as Reyes is concerned here. But it was also kind of cool to just kind of get like a real brief. Well, it wasn't really brief. I I made it brief, but a nice good, <laughs> a nice good understanding on like where where Reyes comes from, uh, which I feel like is is something you don't get too often in this book. I feel like with when it came to Reyes, we got a pretty good backstory as we were introduced to to him. But at the same time, like we've known about the Jag Hut for what, 200, 300 pages at this point, but we're now just finally being introduced to him as like a, a walking, breathing character. Yeah, we've been hearing about him for a while, and yeah, now he's, he's here. I guess we'll see how long he sticks around. Yeah. I think it was super fucked up because it kind of is insinuating that. Uh, he killed his mom. Did you catch that? Or did you feel the same way? Um, I guess I, 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 I'm not sure. Okay. I don't specifically remember. I mean, I, um, in, in my summary, I wrote, and I tried not to copy it word for word, but like the way that Erickson writes is just so beautiful. So I feel like this is one of those summaries that included what was said, but it goes, Reyes' mother was the first to flee his shaping of power, proclaiming the sundering of blood and thus cutting him free. So the way that I'm interpreting that is that his mom, Reyes' mother, is essentially observing Reyes kind of start to shape his power, or, you know, interested in in not very nice things and so i'm assuming proclaiming the sundering of blood is some type of uh parental alienation of their child in some way shape or form where they just you know fuck you you're on your own i'm not helping you anymore and then the very next section he he was like he would dominate or he would dominate those who would resist because those who would resist will be destroyed. So I don't know if that's like related or if that's a segue, but it just, those two sentences, sentences together kind of made me feel like he maybe destroyed his mom or killed her. But it also could be that, you know, it's simply just saying that Reist was abandoned fairly young. I think it's, I mean, it's certainly a, a possibility. I mean, he does not seem to be a very nice 
person. No. So it doesn't sound like there's a lot of remorse in him. So wouldn't surprise. Well, you know what they if he did (laughs) right. Well, you know what they say about three three people who don't have very good things to say about you, and that it must be true. And we have many characters not talking very nice things about Reyes here. <laughs> yes, that is true. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It was definitely more beautifully written than I did it justice. But I definitely, I feel like this is not probably not my favorite section in this chapter, but it's definitely high up there. Yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a good uh, entry for sure. Yeah, and just the whole, uh, you know, him blowing the barrier and flood sunlight. I don't, I don't know. I just get like a a Jesus rising from the dead after three days type of vibe from that. But you're, I, I get a, a little different visual in my head, and I know you're not gonna get it because you haven't seen Lord of the Rings. So you gotta gotta watch those I'll movies. I think of uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep when uh, so there's there's a in the two towers there's a, a battle called Battle of Helm's Deep and it's you know it's I don't remember how many I don't know we'll say probably being generous it's maybe a thousand good guys versus tens hundreds of thousands of orcs um, but the advantage that the good guys have is they're on top of a wall. Um, they're just severely outnumbered. Um, but they have some like, kind of like, I guess, suicide bomber orcs for lack of a better term. They've got like this bomb that they build and there's a, uh, a small like culvert where like a little crick runs out in between, like underneath the wall. And so they, They've got these orcs carrying this bomb, running with this bomb to get it there, because that's the only weakness in the wall to blow the wall up, and uh, they do. And so that, like, the wall coming down, blowing up, blowing out is kind of what I imagine raced coming out of the barrel. I mean, that makes sense based on your description. Um, that sounds, yeah, I would envision that too. Was that in the first movie or was that in the second or third one? That is the second. Okay. I've seen like bits and pieces of the first one. Honestly, I feel like memes have destroyed the Lord of the Rings for me because they're just so bad. Uh, just, I don't know. It's that like video meme of Frodo lying in the bed. I'm assuming it's towards the end of the movie. Um, and all these people like come in and without the sound, it looks really naughty. <laughs> If that makes sense, <laughs> uh, you know, because like they they shoot Frodo on the bed and then they shoot people entering the room and his face is just like, oh, you know, <laughs> so it, it's yeah, it's, it's without yeah. context or audio. It just it looks it looks really <laughs> sexual. So, <laughs> it, yeah, I guess I, I've never thought of it that way, but I can see how you could see that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just. I should have watched it many, many years ago before the internet ruined it. Oh, they're, they're still so good. I'll have to give that a shot. Just uh, commit, you know, 12 hours of your day one day and watch all three of them back to back to back. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll have to do that. So 
maybe winter is coming. So yeah, it is. It uh, yeah, it's coming. Hopefully, with no white walkers. Yes, I can do without yeah, those. I'm good. But uh, yeah, I guess those are those are the only things that I had to say about that section. I don't know if you have any anything else you want to add, but uh, I do not. Are you ready to move Let's on here? Her. All right. Crone rode the hot currents of air above the Gadrobi Hills. She cackled at the absurd amount of energy released, sending debris hundreds of feet into the air. This would be interesting, she thought. A blast of air from above threw Crone off her course. As she adjusted, she climbed higher for a better vantage. Looking down, she saw five ridged backs, but only one shone like fire. Magic and power rippled off the dragon wings as they silently flew over the terrain. While watching the red dragon, Crone bellowed, Solana Dragnaparek T. Tina Dracones. Elient, Elient, the day of the Tistiandi had come. Hmm. I feel like there's so much compacted in here, but I don't really know how to make sense of it. I mean, at first I thought the amount of energy released was uh, uh, per sensing rest, but now I almost kind of feel like it's the dragons. Oh, I because I totally agree with you. I I thought she was seeing race break out of the tomb for sure. Like I mean, that's how I interpret it. I mean, unless it's like you know again it's a really short section but i'm wondering if it's just like crone is flying you know and then all of a sudden she feels this big blast of power and then debris is is shot up in the air that very well could be raised i think it has to be i mean if it's coming up from the ground right and you know that's gotta be it oh okay i got it uh, yeah okay and then a blast of air from above threw crone off her course okay so yeah it's just yeah. intersecting like you know looking looking up she's able to see dragon wings so yeah that's cool that's cool so basically you know outcome raced and you know in comes five ridged back dragons one shining like fire so yeah, maybe old drunk call was right. Well, he clearly is. <laughs> yeah. He knew a thing or two about a thing or two. Yeah, even though he was uh he was a drunk. He's I guess in the last few chapters we've had experiences with him. He hasn't been under the influence. No, he's been pretty good. Do you think they still get DWIs on their horsebacks? Uh, I would think they don't give a shit. <laughs> that is my take. <laughs> Probably not. That was a really, really bad dad joke. I am so sorry. I am ashamed. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, what uh, what do you think it means for the whole the day of the Tistiande has come? Do you think it's just like dragons have been in hibernation for? all of these years and you know i mean i know that the the dragons and and the uh, tistiande are not really related but from what i understand it sounds like the tistiande have uh 
like enslaved is maybe a bad word, but commandeered the dragon's morons. Mm, they're probably gonna mess some shit up. That's what I'm saying. The day of the Tistiande had come. Maybe this is what uh maybe this is like the opposite of what Rake was talking to about Baruch, you know, when he was kind of giving off this very like depressing vibe of the Tisiande and just this like unwillingness to live being that like I don't know it just kind of seems like they're sitting at house board you know not really much excitement to look forward to um just kind of going about their day-to-day tasks like no real heart or drive for it so maybe the releasing of the dragons is uh some type of I don't know. Something for the Tistiande. I, uh, I, I think it's something we'll probably get answered yet in this book. I think we'll get a conclusion on that, though. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, because I feel like uh, now that I've, you know, we've pretty much read, what, 92% of this book, that uh, the moon and gardens of the moon has something to do with moon spawn. I'm fairly certain about that. Is probably yeah, I think so too. But um, yeah, I guess should we move on to our last section here? I don't really have much else to say about that section. I'm glad Crone's yeah, not an annoying bitch in that one. But... <laughs> That's actually what Crone stands for. That is uh, the definition <laughs> if you look it up. Annoying bitch. <laughs> annoying bird bitch. Yeah. Look okay. it up. It's there. <laughs> okay. Will do. It will do. Uh, well, you take take us home here, buddy. All right. Time for the home stretch. Reyes emerged into the afternoon sunlight, seeing the landscape before him. He grunts and thinks to himself that it's not so different after all. Reyes takes a huge breath of fresh air and raises his arms towards the heavens. He searched lightly with his power. Answers came back from the ground. No, he searched for higher sources of power. Yet he sensed nothing. He drove those senses into the ground, earth and bedrock, further down until he felt the sleeping goddess there, questioning the sleeping goddess if he would wake her, or if he should wake her. He decides that he won't yet, but does want to make her bleed. Reyes makes a fist with his right hand, which drives a fissure through the bedrock. Feeling the gush of her blood, it was enough to make her stir, but not awaken. The line of hills lifted in the air as liquid-hot magma rose into the air. The Jaghut smiles. He turned around, striding west toward the highest hill in that direction. His finis lay beyond in that direction. From that vantage point, he could better locate his finis. Halfway up the slope, he hears laughter. Just as the day darkened around him, he saw five enormous shadows sweeping up the slope. Then beyond the hill's summit, the sunlight returned. Five dragons were in perfect formation. As they glide back in his direction, four were black and the other was red, twice as large as the others. Reyes calls out, Solana Redwings, elderborn and true-blooded Tyam, you lead soul-taken? I feel you all. He lowers his arms and mutters that he cannot enslave the red dragon, but he can destroy it. He narrows his eyes at the four black dragons. He calls them soul-taken. 
and taunts him with words of challenging him from from the orders of another. I didn't quite get that, but I thought it was significant in some way. Reyes goes on in an attempt to entice the four black dragons by explaining that Reyes wouldn't lead them to their deaths, but to cherish them, giving them causes to believe in. Reyes scowled as in his head he heard their answer. So be it. The dragons passed by again, banking behind the hills to the south. Reyes gathers his warren so powerfully that his flesh is ripping and falling away from his body. A long minute passes, and he whirls to his right to see Solana and four black dragons plunge over the summit of the hill. Reyes screamed at the whirlwind of power battering him. As it bore down on him, the red dragon's jaws opened wide, and Reyes screamed a second time, releasing his power. The worn Starvalad Demelain, Kerald Galain, and Omatos Falak collided. Shards of rock, earth, were flying through the air. Within the vortex of the worn stood Reyes. Feeling the lashes of sorcery from the dragons, violently, Reyes slashes his worn like a scythe. Blood stained the ground, and the dragon shrieked. Suddenly from the right, fire batters Reyes and knocks him through the air until he lands in ash that was once grass and dirt. He scorched from the fire. He reaches out with his right hand as sorcery lashes from it. The ground shook as Reyes' sorcery slams Solana into the ground, skidding the dragon down the slope. The tyrant, tyrant's roar was cut short as a set of talons plunged into his chest, snapping through the bones. More talons flexed around him as a second dragon joined the first. Reyes was taken airborne, and in his struggle, he dislocated his shoulder, finally, finally finding the scaly leg that held him. Releasing his worn into the leg, he shattered it. Reyes laughs as he was flung away, and more bones snapped as he hit the ground. His power was absolute, and the vessel that carried it was irrelevant. Climbing to his feet, he whispers, Now I deliver death. Like, fucking intense. Like, I probably read that section like three times. I just fucking loved it. It was great. Yeah, he's a pretty big badass. Like, you're getting ripped apart by dragons, and then you, you know, how high in the air did they carry him before he ripped its leg off and fell to the ground and broke some bones, and he's just like, eh, I don't really care. Right, I'm going to get up. And uh, the whole, the power is absolute, but is the vessel that carried it was irrelevant. So, like, it's just this, like, uh, is he, like, some type of body snatcher? He just, like, takes takes different bodies uh, as a way of getting around. Like, I mean, maybe he is in some type of bargast body. I, I, I don't know. I mean... He said to have tusks, so I don't know if that... Yeah, that's weird. It uh, makes me wonder how Rake is going to stand up to him. Yeah. I mean, he's battling five dragons. One is twice as, as big as the other four. So, yeah, yeah. I'm interested to, to see where this goes very cliffhangery type chapter 
you know, just cuts off like right in the middle of this battle. Or maybe even not the middle, but you know, something just got started. Kind of reminds me of Thanos a little bit. Yeah, I get that. I get that sense too. I feel where you're going there on that. Yeah. I don't think he's going to snap his fingers and make people disappear. Yeah. He's probably going to snap his fingers and snap some necks. <laughs> right. I'm wondering how many of these dragons come out, if any of them do. You know, but he also, you know, Solana, he doesn't seem, he knows he can't enslave Solana. But I'm assuming that means that he can slave, enslave the other four. That's a good point. So, I, yeah, where this is going, I have no fucking idea. Yeah, but they, like you said, they did leave it on a pretty big cliffhanger. But it's just, yeah, I, I don't even know how to describe how I imagined it in my head. You know, it's just like all three of these Warrens just colliding and all six of these characters interacting with each other just out for blood. You know, it's just a fight for survival. It, it it was just so beautiful, beautifully written, uh, taking what I have in my mind and, and articulating it verbally is, uh, it was hard to do, but I yeah, really yeah. liked how I had it in my head. It was, it was great. It was a good scene. Yeah, it was. I, I really liked, you know, when he like winds up and punches the ground and, you know, creates this kind of like i imagine like a crevice you know and then there's lava shooting up out of it and stuff and yeah it's cool a lot of cool imagery for sure yeah um which you bring up a good point um or something that is related to that and i know that he's trying to awaken or stir the sleeping goddess but not awake her so i'm assuming i don't know if all of that was like some type of euphemism for mother earth or if there is actually a god a goddess of the earth that is just kind of slumbering and letting letting its creation do what it's gonna do you know i know that you know a polytheistic type of world so I guess I don't know if if he's referring to just kind of the you know quote unquote mother earth or if there is legitimately like a sleeping earth goddess um so that that part was really cool and I think I think most people would just assume that it is a you know a goddess of the earth that he's trying to wake up like a very literal interpretation but I think I think that what he's talking about here is just erupting mother earth and leaving it in in a way that is a bit more disastrous than how he found it yeah it seems like he's just trying to create the chaos right yeah because he can right i mean who's gonna stop him now and he knows that and it was probably a pretty small taste order you know he's capable of doing yeah and i mean i guess now that i'm thinking about it, it it's really funny that we, I mean, we haven't known Reyes very long, but he's kind of living up to expectations, right? Like, oh, this yeah, is kind definitely. of what you can expect. But on the contrast, when it comes to Amanda, Amon, why can't I say that name? Amanda, God Jesus, I'm just gonna say Rake. Anamander, Anamander, 
Thank you. I don't know why I would say Anoma on there. Anomander Rake. Um, he, you know, as we've talked about, like he really downplays himself. So like you kind of doubt what what he is capable of. But on the other hand, you have Reyes, who is so full of himself. You know, like we know what it is that he can do. We know what to expect from him as a character. But on the other hand, Rake, we're left doubting. But we're sorry, we're told that they they could compete each other. Raced with a little bit more of a an edge up, so to speak. But I just think I just think that that was an interesting contrast that uh, those two characters who are meant to to battle are literally, as far as like their uh, their modesty and humility, are completely opposite. Yeah, so they're like uh, two sides of the same coin. Right, conflict a little bit, which. It's funny because from what we're told so far is that they will have some type of encounter. It's going to be good. It's going to be big. But um, yeah, I guess the only other thing that like um, is really driving me crazy is this whole soul taken term. Is this like, uh, is this alluding to the Tistiandi taking the Starvalad Warren? the Starvalad Demolane Warren, or is this something else? You know? Because I feel like Soul Taken comes up a few times throughout this book, and I feel like it's a term that, like, we don't quite have an explanation to um, outside of some type of literal... Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but Paran and... Or not Paran, but Pran and uh, Karul in Corrupt Stream... Don't they don't they call Tattersail Soul Taken? I thought so. Is it just Tisiande who have you know soul shifted into dragons? I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah. It's just it's it's driving me crazy. Like I think about it every once in a while. I'm like, what is soul taken? What does that mean? Like specifically. Obviously we're not gonna like look it up. <laughs> Well, no, right, yeah, because we're not we're not doing the spoilage thing, which I'll I'm say sure we've run into something. Yeah, it's uh, it's harder. It's it's really hard not to. I always think of that. Up, have you ever seen How I Met Your Mother? Uh, not in quite a while. I never finished it. Um, okay. I don't remember how many seasons I got through. Well, there's. I mean, it's not like a huge spoiler or anything, but I mean, um, the. There was an episode where they were trying to not like look at the Super Bowl results, like who won the Super Bowl, um, because they were for whatever reason unable to watch the Super Bowl together, and they all wanted to watch the Super Bowl together. So they had like, you know, TiVo'd it or whatever, you know, recorded it in some fashion, and they were like, okay, we just got to go throughout the day without reading any newspaper or any interweb or like any conversation about, you know, who won the Super Bowl. Um, so like, like impossible. Right. Right. Absolutely. With some, a game that big, like you're going to find out in pretty much your first interaction, but they come up with all these like crazy schemes to like not see or hear anything, uh, but still keep the tradition of how they watch the Super Bowl every year together. So I guess I just, 
in a more exaggerated way that's how i feel about not spoiling <laughs> any of the series you know like i have to be super careful i don't look up anything online you know anything on facebook i ignore that has malazan in it unless it's like gardens of the moon but even that's a risk too so uh, yeah, though now we're getting towards the end of the book, I feel like it's less of a risk. But... Right, yeah. Yeah, so I just try to keep it to Gardens of the Moon, struggle, hard time. That's pretty much yeah. the <laughs> that I like look at. So, yeah, I yeah, just fucking epic way to end this chapter. Fucking epic way. Loved it. Yeah, it was good. Well, it was good. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. A lot of fun to read. Yeah, and we uh, at this point we've got like maybe a little under hundred pages left to read, something like that. So, um, yeah, yeah, we're in the home stretch. We are definitely in rounding, the home third, rounding third base, coming home. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! I'm excited, but. I don't know. I always get this like weird, this weird like anxiety around finishing a book because I don't know where it's going to end and what state it's going to end in. But I guess the beautiful thing is, it's like we're not waiting for the next one to release. <laughs> we have true. We can immediately jump into the next one. So yeah, and take another six or seven months to read it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. But um yeah. Our uh, yeah, I guess I don't have anything else to add to that section. Or the or the chapter itself. It was a good no, chapter. I don't think so. I've got nothing else to add either. Sweet. That's all I have to say about that chapter, but um we did uh record a couple of days ago our uh pray podcast. But unfortunately, we ran into some technical difficulties getting that edited. Um, yeah, we, we recorded uh, an episode on the, uh, the movie that just came out on Hulu, Prey, uh, Predator movie. And uh, we had a guest, uh, Dave, from Xenomorphing, a Hive Mind podcast. And um, we had a lot of fun talking and having that conversation. But we just ran into some technical issues that... Uh, prevented Justin from getting that out a little bit sooner and kind of bled into this episode a little bit too. Yeah. So apologize for the tech technical difficulties all, but uh, it seems like we should be, should, should be good to go and we'll hopefully get this episode up in a couple of days. Definitely. And I guess uh, we'll see what happens here with the next one. That might be not as long of a delay, but you're going to be a busy guy here this next week. So, I don't, I guess I'm kind of planning on that we're not going to record here this upcoming week. Yeah, I would, yeah, moving and packing and closing and kids' school stuff and sports. Yeah, it's, it's going it, to, it'll probably be a couple of weeks before we can get um, this next chapter, uh, chapter 21, episode 22 uploaded. But yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get there as we, we near the end of the book of Gardens of the Moon, so I'm excited. I know that you're excited to uh, to finally wrap up this book. It uh, seems like a really big accomplishment. 
I feel yeah, like it takes yeah. a, a lot of patience for two people to read one chapter at a time, record their results, uh, and then read the next one while, you know, lifing, doing that life yeah. thing. We'll get there. Yeah. But it's mean? been fun. Yeah. It's still fun. It, it's definitely, I think that's kind of what makes it an epic quest, Agreed. I guess. Agreed. With that, I'll, uh, I'll let you go, sir. All right, we'll be in touch. Take care. Later, man. See ya. Bye.